everybody and welcome to our April episode of All the Year Round. We're a monthly seasonal podcast that looks at British and Irish literature in the 19th century. I'm one of your hosts, Emma Probert. I'm working on a book about Jane Austen and Elizabeth Gaskell on the novel of manners. And I'm Dr Hayden and I look at dreams, especially in periodicals in the 19th century. And as promised, as promised, we have our guest, our lovely friend and wonderful colleague, Dr. Jacqueline Favalero. So Jackie, can you tell us a tiny little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, so um, I have um, most recently completed my PhD um, looking at Charlotte Bronte and the role of folklore and fairy in her work. Yes, and I, I just knew, I knew from the very start, I was just like, Charlotte Bronte, we have to have Jackie on the podcast. <laughs> I want to hear all of the thoughts, all of the thoughts here. Um, and why Charlotte Bronte? today and why Charlotte Bronte it's because it's Charlotte Bronte's birthday today <laughs> happy birthday Charlotte I believe that she's I said this on the show I want to say 207th I think it's her 207th wow. birthday so yes happy birthday Charlotte <laughs> this one's for you <laughs> and of course Jackie you look particularly at fairy in <laughs> Charlotte Bronte's work but before we get into that with Charlotte Bronte Fairy itself is quite interesting, just generally to the Victorians. So, what did they think fairy was? Um, Yes, so fairy to the Victorians, um, there's not really a straightforward answer. Um, Fairy meant different things to different people throughout the period, um, and that is one of the things I found really interesting, kind of in my own research. Um, There's also been kind of a lot of confusion between what fairy and folklore is compared to fairy tale. Um, Victorians were also very interested in fairy tales. Um, However, my research kind of differentiates between them, um, focusing more on kind of, you know, the oral folklore and folk tales um, and more kind of fairy creatures rather than things like Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's... um... That is an interesting distinction. And obviously fairy tales don't necessarily feature fairy at all, do they? You've got things like Little Red Riding Hood and, you know, Sleeping um, no, Sleep Beauty does have one. Yeah, Sleeping Beauty's got a few in there. Yeah. But does Snow White? I mean, Snow White's no, like, she's a sorceress. Like I'm not sure right? if that counts. Yeah. yeah. Or would you say that that counts? Um, it's a bit tricky. Again, this is something that I've always kind of struggled to define mm-hmm. in my own research. Um, so the word fairy um, kind of encapsulates more than just like a fairy creature. So like you were just mentioning, kind of Sleeping Beauty has, you know, we have the, the three kind of fairies that, you know, follow mm. her around and things like that. So fairy could include a fairy, singular, mm-hmm. but fairy can also include kind of the collective of kind of the realm, which could include things like goblins, things like um, banshee, things like, um, you know, guy trash, all sorts um, in addition to just kind of pertaining to something that is enchanted or enchantment. So, yeah, so it, it does definitely kind of overlap across different things. Um, but I think the de- main difference with, with fairy tale and folklore is fairy tale is kind of tied to a specific author um, and it's kind of written with a purpose, usually a moral or for kind of an instructional, you know, um, yeah. lesson in there where folklore um comes from oral origins and you usually can't pin down kind of where that came mm-hmm. from and i think folklore um and fairy come from kind of a system of belief mm-hmm. where fairy tale is more for entertaining reading for entertainment 
folklore and kind of the general fairy kind of collective of creatures, um, the people who told those stories genuinely believed in these creatures. There was superstition around them. There was stories behind, you know, Mm -hmm. um, the creature itself, what it signified, you know, um, good omens, bad omens and things like that. So it was kind of, it was real for those who kind of engaged in that storytelling. Yeah, I have a bit of a weird question for you, if that's okay. Okay. Um, So my my understanding of, like, the fairy is obviously not as in-depth as yours, um, and is probably a little bit outdated from, like, Charlotte Bronte's period. But I'm thinking about, like, changelings. Yeah, because Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, I was wondering about how those kind of factored in, because that is, like, a... That's, like, almost... I mean, again, you have much more experience with this, but that's almost, like, the most real-life belief... Oh, yeah. ...kind of thing of, like, abandoning... Well, quote-unquote, abandoning your child because you believe that it is not your child and that your child will be returned to you, mm-hmm. if I'm getting that yeah, correct. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah. yeah, so the changeling, um, basically, like you said, um, it, it kind of occurred in children and babies as well as adults as well. Adults, adults are, as well? I yeah, didn't know that one. Yeah, there's a really, really, really horrific um, kind of late 19th century... Um, I think it was the Tipperary Murder, or it has some type of name oh. like that um, in Ireland where a husband was convinced that his wife was kind of taken by the fairies and replaced with a changeling. Um, and there was this kind of like whole list of rituals that would be done to kind of release this changeling. As you mentioned, people would kind of abandon babies and hope that the fairies would return. But there was really, really kind of gruesome, um, kind of like burning people to like bring the changeling out. And yeah, um, basically this, this his wife ended up being killed. Um, because he thought she was changeling and, and yeah, it was a murder trial. You can yeah, you can read all about it. It was it was quite intense. So yeah, it uh it turned out she just had some mental health issues and was Yep was yep, you know, <laughs> as these things go. Um yeah, and they, they kinda didn't know how to, you know, you know, identify those. Yeah, so I'm not sure if you know, but was he convicted out of interest? Was there like a legal precedent? There to be definitely, like... yeah, there definitely was like legal proceedings. But I, I do think he was. I do think he was convicted, and it wasn't just him. I think it was like other relatives were involved as well. So it was kind of, yeah, it was big systematic really big... abuse at this point. Yeah, woman. yeah, 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 exactly. I actually, funnily enough, have recently read a book which I'm pretty sure is based on that case. It's okay. called The Hidden People. Right. Um, I can't remember what the author's name is now, but maybe we can put it in the in the description. Yeah, um, I get that, but yeah, yeah. it's exactly that. So yeah, uh, there is a series on on Amazon called Lore. Um, I don't know if it's still on, but it was a couple of years ago. And one of those episodes did do this particular changeling um, story. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, how I would how I originally kind of came across it. And then in my own research, I said, oh yeah, I remember you know seeing yeah. this. So yeah, um, so yeah, as you said, changelings kind of fall under the fairy kind of umbrella. So yeah. Yeah, it was as well. Emma, uh, Alison Littlewood, you were just uh, <laughs> pointing out to me. So it is The Hidden People by Alison Littlewood is that, um, is that book. But even, um, like, aside from the changelings, it obvi- obviously was a very sort of, like, real belief. Throughout the kind of early 1800s onwards, there was a lot of very real research into the existence of fairy, wasn't there? Like, yeah. fairy ethnography oh, using, yeah. like... Um, little found arrowheads and things and yeah naming them as elf bolts yeah evidence of the existence of fairy yeah definitely yeah um carl silver kind of terms the 19th century as kind of you know like the birth of fairy scholarship what she calls Mm -hmm. um there's kind of this this kind of boom and and interest in kind of uncovering um kind of the folkloric past and documenting that 
um, kind of before, you know, industrialization took over and, mm-hmm. and these things were kind of lost forever. So, yeah, um, there was a, a huge surge in, in interest in fairy and kind of, you know, uncovering, like you said, artifacts and, yeah, things like that. Yeah, I, I really love all of that. I found it really interesting. I know, um, I think it was Stephen Prickett talks about how for the Victorians, when they were finding, he sort of says like monsters beneath their feet. So this was a time when like archaeology was, uh, I mean, dinosaurs were being discovered. Yeah. Had like Cuvier um, and his research, and and he sort of says like it's not surprising that they then thought, well, why can't we discover that there's actual physical evidence of the existence of fairy? Because here are these kind of dragons beneath mm. their feet and evidence of that existing. And it's kind of that intersection of fantasy and, and science yeah. you almost always wish could actually be, <laughs> yes, be real yeah. well we still don't know everything well, really no. <laughs> um but um, i mean we've spoken about change things and as you were saying that part with the monsters but what is particularly interesting about jackie's research is that she takes it in like a different direction so it's not negative you see it as like quite a healing and positive space for charlotte Bronte. yes yeah um so one of the kind of most common um, kind of critical analyses of Charlotte Bronte's work is that a lot of these fairy references and folklore references are kind of used to label, used to marginalize, used to degrade, mm. um, label things as other kind of mm. things that, you know, um, you know, for example, Rochester might not be okay with the fact that Jane is poor or a working woman, so he labels her as a fairy because it's kind of, you know, kind of separating her. Um, but I argue that actually these references are quite empowering and they're healing and that fairy and folklore and fairyland offer kind of a unique space to heal therapeutically um, for the characters throughout throughout her work. So Yeah, and that genuinely is like all the way throughout her work, isn't it? That's yeah. what you found. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my research kind of starts with the juvenilia and kind of her earliest writings and kind of tracks, you know, the emergence of fairy and folklore. Um, throughout kind of all of her later novels until, you know, up until the fragments that she was still working on before she died. So, yeah, um, definitely kind of tropes that, you know, are born in the juvenilia and carry through for her. She she can't quite, you know, let them go. She keeps using this idea of, you know, um, fairy as a safe place, as a safe space, as much for her characters as, as her as a person as well. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it is I something really, that. yeah, really it important to her. Important. Yeah, definitely. I like that it's reflexive in that as well. I mean, if anyone who's ever read my thesis, I constantly talk about reflexive readings. And by that, I just mean that everything kind of like mirrors each other. So like, Fairy is a safe place for Charlotte Bronte's characters in the same way that her, like in a meta sense, writing fiction makes that kind of fairy space a safe place for her as well. Yeah, that's so it's a nice way of, way of like, for vicarious living. I have, again, another, Really, probably annoying question. Um, but I was thinking about like the way that Rochester and other people describe Jane as this kind of like fairy figure. Mm-hmm. But then I was also thinking about um, Rochester's ward mm-hmm. and how kind of like almost elfin she is. Yeah. And like the relationship that, that you think exists there, mm-hmm. or if you think there is kind of any kind of dynamic or mirroring or interesting aspects between sort of Jane and Adele. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, I mean, the one kind of passage that's, that, that sticks out to me is um, when they're all kind of in the carriage, mm-hmm. I think they're going to get like bridal 
accessory. Oh, yeah. yeah. What is it? The trousseau. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And um, Rochester tells the story to Adele of how he came upon this fairy. And actually, it's a kind of a retelling of um, earlier in the novel when Jane goes to visit her aunt and then comes back and kind of happens upon him um, writing. Um, and he kind of is, you know, leading Adele through this fantasy of having found this fairy. I think they talk about going to the moon together to live forever and, you know, all of this. And he has a magic ring. And Adele's really captivated by that. Um, but, yeah, I'm not sure anything really kind of sticks out as far as Adele being a fairy herself, um, at least kind of in my own observations. But I definitely think Rochester kind of brings Adele into that fairy, that kind of exclusive fairy realm that he kind of builds with Jane kind of does bring into that. Is that like a safe space? Yes, definitely, yeah. definitely. However, towards the end, I think, doesn't she kind of, does she get sent away, I think, to school? So, I, yeah, I don't I don't really know, like, how kind of invested she is in, in their kind of fair relationship. But I do think that is something, you know, he shares with Jane, but then kind of does pull Adele in, probably more so for the benefit of Jane, to, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I guess even in terms of, like, explaining to a child what's happened, it was yeah. it's quite a safe and kind of nice explanation of why Jane has gone away to her, frankly, quite abusive yeah. aunt and, yeah. and returned to the family and returned as, a, as, like, a different person in many senses. Yeah, and I think it also might help kind of explain his relationship to Jane, mm -hmm. to a child, by kind mm -hmm. of, like, putting it into this kind of enchanted, whimsical, fairy narrative. It's something that she can kind of grasp, I think. Yeah. And it sort of starts to edge towards the fairy tale then, doesn't it? Because yeah, they yeah. do have that purpose of kind of uh, presenting those, like, scary real-world lessons, potentially, to, yeah. to, like, a child. Like with Little Red Riding Hood. Like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's just unfortunate that he neglects to mention that he's already married and, you know. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't yeah. complicate yeah. the fairy tale. <laughs> I was say, so, yeah. like, would that mean that, like, Jane is folklore and Bertha is fairy tale? Um, I mean, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I tend to kind of view Bertha as um, reality kind of mm -hmm. intruding on the couple's kind of... Yeah. Because um, it, it, the way that kind of the Rochester-Jane dynamic is, is is very much fueled by Rochester. Jane doesn't really kind of... She she participates, but she doesn't kind of initiate, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of, you know, important to kind of understand their dynamic. Um, but he gets kind of swept away. He starts to kind of, you know, um, shower her with things and keeps referring to her as, you know, fairy. He says, like, I'll put rings on your fairy fingers and all this. And then I think at one point he mistakes her eye color and Jane's kind of like, I don't really know, like, what's going on. Like, we might need to pump the brakes. Like, this is getting a bit out of hand. It's a bit too crazy. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're about to get married and then what happens? You know, Bertha's brother comes over, obviously, and it's a bit like, e, like, this probably can't happen. And then it's, Jane's like, oh, well, this is this is a problem, you know? Yeah. Um, and Bertha kind of just rips through the narrative once this kind of, you know, swirl of fantasy and, and fairy and mm -hmm. starts kind of kicking off. Bertha kind of enters the scene as like this reminder of like, actually, we can't get too swept up in fairyland. We do have reality. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm here, obviously. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of one function of Bertha that I found. Um, the other is there's actually a, um, you might be familiar with the ladies magazine yeah. and kind of your research. Yes. Yeah. So yes. this was actually kind of fun to kind of like 
deep deep dive into and find but there's a um a tale from ladies magazine um the exact date i don't have off the top of my head um but it is called malevola and um benaya i think is the way you would say it it's basically about two fairies one um is a good fairy one's a bad fairy um one kind of um helps people and is you know very nourishing and very just you know supportive presence exactly the other is um, she grants people's wishes, but only wishes that they know the regret and then be kind of cowering, like, please reverse it. That's kind of like her vibe. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this story is in the ladies magazine and it actually is mentioned later. It's kind of referred to in Villette. Um, but I do think that it is in Jane Eyre, just a bit more indirect. And mm-hmm. I kind of think Jane is that um, Benyaya and then Malevola, the evil fairy is kind of Bertha. So it's kind of like two sides of the same coin where we have, you know, the light, bright, airy fairy Jane Eyre, and then we have Bertha, who is this, you know, malevolent goblin yeah. kind of persona. Um, so it's kind of like the balance of the two sides. It has quite literally only just occurred to me that we have like earth and air literally in the name. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Just... It's, yeah. Because, My yeah. mind is blown because yeah. I had not got the <laughs> earth thing. The air thing was there. Yeah. Wait, who's water? Because you have Helen Burns. Is anybody oh, water? No. For some reason, my brain like St. John. I don't know how he would be, but mm-hmm. I don't know. He's a bit of a the wet rivers. blanket. The rivers. There you go. The rivers. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The rivers. Yeah. That actually. They're all there. Elemental. <laughs> and in fairy lore, we have elemental fairies. We have. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to Sir Walter Scott, who. Well, it goes further back than that, but his research kind of talked about the origins of fairies and um, the Scandinavian origins and their words would literally be something like, you know, fairy of the air, fairy of the water, yeah. fairy of the, you know, of the, or elf, that word would be elf. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, elf, you know, the mountain, the air, the water, you know, elemental spirits kind yeah. of thing. So this yeah. This connection to the earth, to the land, this is yeah. the one part of fairy lore, isn't yeah, it? Rather yeah. fairy tales. Are. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned that about Bertha as well because... She's kind of like that grounding, you know, reality of not getting too soaked up. I think that is one of the kind of common themes across the Victorian relationship with folk and fairy is like they like to indulge, but they're also very aware of reality. And it's almost kind of like that Victorian guilt of like, oh, duty over, you know, pleasure kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, I think you kind of see that with the Bertha rochester jane dynamic of these two getting swept up in their own little fairy safe space and then bertha kind of re-emerging being like oh well remember me (laughs) i have just had like the weirdest thought here yeah of like elemental fairies and how they might be defeated it's like if we think of helen burns as a kind of like fire fairy she dies i think of consumption yeah and it's based on i think is it rowhead yeah yeah um, which also had the same thing, and that's usually connected with dampness and like yeah. water, yeah. and like like the place being too damp and so people get sickly. And Bertha, who's ground, like she's scorched earth because she's killed by fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we might need to dive a bit deeper into this whole elemental. Yeah. The elemental vibes. Yeah. I'm really interested in how Rochester fits into this though, like yeah. between those two different aspects. So. Do you think it's him actively creating that safe space for them to exist? And how do you think he sees himself in relation to, like, fairyland? Yeah, so I do think, like I mentioned, he does kind mm-hmm. of initiate. Um, yeah. 
Jane, before she meets Rochester, she kind of has her own, obviously, the experience in the Red Room, yeah. where that's kind of the start of her own kind of crafting fairyland as a, a healing space, as yeah. a therapeutic space. Um, obviously, she sees herself in the mirror as a fairy. Um, and there's loads of kind of this idea reoccurring throughout um, the novel. She sees, mm-hmm. like, you know, a fairy hollow. And then kind of later when she flees, you know, Thornfield, she's quite literally in a fairy hollow for safe space overnight, you know, kind of in the land. Um, but as far as Rochester goes, mm-hmm. um, I mean, he kind of just comes up with the fairy references after they meet for the first yeah. time, you know, and it's kind he's of like... He's coming up with it on the fly. Exactly. Yeah. So he's obviously, like, quite knowledgeable about fairy lore anyway. Um, but yeah, and it's kind of almost like this bantering, you know, like, you know, he says, oh, you know... You bewitched my horse. You're waiting for your, you know, your people. Your, you know, the men in green. He says, um, and she says, "Oh, you know, no, of course they left England ages ago. Like, no way was I waiting. You know, it's kind of like this. I don't want to say flirty because, like, I, I don't think she would dare flirt with, you know. But it's almost kind of like this bantering back and forth, um, and kind of as the novel progresses, it gets kind of more and more. Um, and there's this scene as well where. I think they're like both on the grounds and he kind of takes her into this leafy enclosure and says how like this space is so beautiful way more beautiful than Thornfield and I think Jane's kind of like what do you mean like it's a beautiful mansion and he describes it as like a bleak dungeon compared mm-hmm. to the natural beauty of kind of this this you know little enchanted mm-hmm. hollow space that he kind of like pulls her into so it does seem kind of throughout the novel that he's trying to pull Jane into this this space and Obviously, there's a lot of argument around kind of, well, you know, Jane's obviously a woman. She's, you know, a governess. She's a working woman. She comes from a background. She doesn't really have family. Mm -hmm. She has a need to create a safe space. Like, why would Rochester need to create a safe space? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, he might, you know, be a male and, you know, have money and whatnot. But he obviously has his own things that he battles with as well. And obviously, this is more more sympathetic view of Rochester than many might have. but obviously he does need healing to some degree. You know, he does need that. He craves that. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, I think it's just kind of him seeing Jane as kind of a similar, you know, Jane even says something like he's not of their kind, he's of mine. So it's kind of like this mutual recognition between the two as identifying themselves as kind of similar in, you know, their mm-hmm. need to heal, their need to... And they both kind of craft these fairy spaces. But as I mentioned, kind of throughout the whole novel, it's, mm-hmm. it's Rochester kind of building this this scene and kind of drawing Jane in. And Jane doesn't really draw him in until the very end. So mm-hmm. it is kind of this push and pull um, until obviously the end of the novel. But when there's conclusion, do you see the end of the novel as like the final healing? Um, it's a good question. I, I also don't know how I see the end I know, of the novel. I feel like it's healing everywhere final but um yeah yeah but I think as far as kind of like the story arc it is like a good place um obviously they both kind of uh reconnect in Ferndine Mm -hmm. and that is quite literally like a fairy hollow it's secluded it's wrapped kind of in you know trees and and all of this it's deep in the woodland Mm -hmm. um and And is busy physically healing yeah 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 exactly he's obviously physically healing um and yeah you, you have this exchange that takes place between them where jane refers to him as a brownie and that's kind of the first time she kind of um refers to him as a creature of fairy uh is that her kind of entering into that 
Well, yeah, that's what, that's what I think anyway, is kind of her taking her space and kind of expanding it to include him now. And like the brownie is quite a significant um, reference. I don't know how much either of you know about Tell us about brownies. I okay, don't know. So the best thing to kind of compare what a brownie would be is kind of similar to like Dobby the house elf. Like oh my God. Yeah. So basically there were these kind of fairy creatures that would um, do kind of all your housework while you slept mm-hmm. and they wouldn't require anything except like a little bowl of milk or cream yeah. or something like some bread, just some like, you know, scraps basically. They'd be happy with kind of eating and then they would just kind of carry on and do all the things overnight while you slept. Um, so they're great. they're quite domestic. They, they I think they can be quite quite nasty. If you yeah, they kind of they were very proud and um, they would mostly kind of be seen in rags. And if you tried to kind of present them with clothing, um, obviously where Dobby would be a free elf, brownies would be they'd take it personally and they'd say, okay, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, and oh, then they'd right. go and find another family to serve kind of thing. So yeah, um, but. It links them with um, the domestic, and it links mm-hmm. them with the home, and it links them with, mm-hmm. you know, kind of that idea. So the fact that Jane refers to Rochester as a brownie, it's almost kind of like taking him into their domestic mm-hmm. relationship, and, mm-hmm. you know, they find a home together. and So it is quite quite a unique you know, and, and she doesn't make him, like, Oberon, like, King of the Fairies or anything. No. She makes him a very domestic, it's very, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, humble... Yeah. yeah, someone who's been servitude to yeah. the home. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they kind of don't end as, you know, kind of a, a fairy queen and king. They kind of end it as, you know, yeah. kind of just humble little kind of woodland fairy folk just living and, yeah. Well, we're at the subject of um, Jane Eyre generally, but it's that connection between uh, Jane and Rochester. Yeah. have to have to go here because yeah. obviously with uh, with Jane Eyre, with Bronte generally, there's also uh, quite a lot of dream links and kind of trance yeah. and yeah. I wonder how much you think that is connected to fairy, maybe especially in Jane Eyre, is that something that is part of Bronte's vision of the fairy world? Um, is that also an escape <laughs> place? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously one of the most notable references kind of in Jane Eyre is once Jane hears kind of Rochester calling out and then she kind of knows, you know, to go to him, Um, which could, you know, go back to the fact that they do have kind of a connection, a fairy connection. So, yeah, I definitely do think there is a link between kind of fairy realms and sleeping and dreaming. Um, A lot of um, the kind of poetry and prose in the annuals of the period would have people kind of falling asleep and being transported um and Bronte kind of mirrors that in some of her juvenilia as well um kind of her characters will be in the woods and sit down and fall asleep and then kind of you know and then they wake up they think it's real you know obviously and then they wake up to find that actually they were were sleeping so yeah I definitely think there is um quite a, a an important relationship between kind of the trance and sleeping and dreaming and fairies um, but yeah, I would say as far as Jane Eyre goes, I think that that element to things only kind of strengthens that, you know, connection of, of that otherworldly connection, that fairy connection, that, you know, that, that idea of enchantment between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. So in the Juvenalia, does that become a lot more kind of literal then? That is a way for the character to enter into the realm of fairy through dreams? Yeah, so it's a bit of both. Like I said, there definitely is, um, you know, the reference of someone sleeping and experiencing. But then it's quite experimental, the juvenilia. Um, We have fairy in 
loads of different ways. We have fairy in kind of dreams. We have fairy in the landscape, um, where Bronte kind of crafts these fairy landscapes um, and then kind of has um, creatures like whiz in and out of them. She kind of describes reality as the dark inhabitations of mortals, I believe she describes it as. Um, and then we have fairyland is it's almost um, if I'm not sure how familiar you are with the New Jerusalem from the Bible, but it's no, tell me. it's almost kind of like, you know, like streets of gold and pearl and, you know, precious gems. And it's like this beautiful landscape. Um, but then she also kind of invites fairy creatures into this landscape as well. Um, and she refers to kind of these scenes as um, fairy lands outright as well. So um, she definitely has kind of conscious characters in these places as well. Um, in addition to that, her and the siblings um, kind of, they write themselves into these stories as these chief genii, um, but then also refer to themselves as fairies. So it's kind of like they're mm. fairies as well in the writing, um, in addition to kind of being like the fairies looking over the scenes and the settings and everything like that. So yeah, it's 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 quite, um, there's loads of fairy in the Juvenalia and it kind of presents itself in, in many different ways. So yeah. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. It's very cool. I, I still, I just love the fact that they kind of created that as an escape. Mm-hmm. So very early on, and that became like an important part of the writing that then carries on, even when it's not mm-hmm. kind of as literal, even when it's not transportation kind of into fairy land, it's still firmly there. It's still that space of yeah. of comfort, of yeah. healing, the place to escape to. Yeah, and I do think that definitely does connect with uh, with dream and this uh, when thou sleepest as well. Um, Bronte's poem, which yeah. is just very much about dream as being this place mm. that you can escape to it's a place of freedom yeah and if she connects that with fairy yeah. fairy land is the place you escape to in dream yeah then that absolutely backs up yeah definitely and there is there is a reference that she makes um when she's at rowhead and she she has her rowhead journals mm-hmm. um and obviously the Junalia can kind of be interpreted as you know a fairy land in general um, and she writes about how, you know, she's, she's like so sick of the duty and like the mundane of, you know, teaching and that life, um, where sometimes she allows herself to slip into a trance mm-hmm. back to kind of the world of the juvenilia. So, yeah, yeah. plus trance was used interchangeably with dream yeah. Uh, yeah. at the time. Exactly. So. And I mean, some of these writings, it's like even difficult to read them because you can't tell when she's kind of writing what's actually happening in the room and then what's happening like mm-hmm. in the fiction like mm-hmm. in her mind and it it almost feels like you're like you know transient reading these these texts and these these letters so yeah it is really interesting mm-hmm. yeah it does create that kind of almost like um like a traversable boundary it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying happens in Jane Eyre as well yeah. it's kind of slipping between reality yeah. and fairy oh yeah definitely it's definitely kind of like this liminal space where it's like not quite reality but it's not quite you know fantasy it's kind of like this they're able to just dip in and out and kind of hover between um and sometimes you can't really you know there's again Jane Eyre there's a scene where they're outside um and a lot of things happen to take place um during twilight right Mm. which is like the hotbed for fairy activity (laughs) you know um and i think it's kind of around that tide even tide and um she sees rochester but rochester doesn't see her and he's watching a moth 
and it's an, an otherworldly moth from, I think he says it looks like something from the West Indies, which obviously, you know, a moth from the West Indies wouldn't, wouldn't be in Britain. Yeah. Um, also, moth reference kind of echoes Midsummer Night's Dream, one of the fairies is named Moth. Um, but he's kind of watching it, and Jane sees him, and she's like, oh, I'm going to kind of sneak back inside. And she kind of tiptoes, and he doesn't see her, but she steps over his shadow, and she he then is alerted to her presence and says, oh, Jane, come look at this fellow, meaning the moth. And she says something like, it's as if his shadow could feel. And it's like this weird kind of not real, but not, you know, it's like this yeah. this liminal space. Um, and you have this kind of, you know, insect that is otherworldly, you know, at the same time. So it's like, it is this like weird hovering, you know, place of, of not quite reality, but not quite, you know. It's a really beautiful scene. Yeah, oh yeah, I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. I do wonder whether maybe Charlotte Bronte was particularly apt at lucid dreaming or whether, mm. like, in the present day, she'd be one of those people who was constantly YouTubing on how to lucid dream. Mm. So I think that'll be her vibe. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, definitely. Do you, actually, on that note, do you have a favourite fairy reference by Charlotte Bronte? Oh, gosh. Um... So many to choose from. <laughs> I know. Oh, gosh. I don't know if I have an answer prepared for that. I would say, obviously, because we're talking about Jane Eyre, I would say mm. I'll restrict it to Jane Eyre to keep it simple. And then, you know. Too I, kind, too kind. You yeah. can tell us yeah. every other novel yeah, when we, we get round to yes, this. I'll, like, yeah, exactly. I'll kind of like tell you my favorite bits as we go. Um, but for Jane Eyre, I would have to say. Um, I think it would have to be kind of like the original fairy in the mirror reference because you know I think she says something like her eyes like glittering and like specks in the gloom or something like that and there's a lot of really beautiful kind of descriptors in that passage um and like I said it's kind of the the you know event in the novel that kind of sparks all the fairy stuff um and it kind of foreshadows you know she says how She's a fairy, you know, in the lone dells, like, you know, looking for a belated traveler. And obviously that's kind of echoed later when she, she sees Rochester. So, yeah, I would probably say that one. Also because she identifies herself as the fairy, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, again, that kind of contrasts with a lot of other researchers kind of, you know, saying that, you know, Rochester labels her to degrade her. But actually she assumes that identity herself yeah. openly and, you know, so... Yeah. I think it's quite important for that. So, yeah, I would have to say kind of the original kind of first instance of a fairy in the novel is probably my favourite. Yeah, and I think that really speaks to a lot of what your work does because, yeah, it's an empowering moment as well. She's put in, like, a really scary situation. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that she takes strength and safety from that as part of her identity. Yeah. I love that interpretation. Yeah, 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 definitely. But it has been absolutely lovely to speak to you about Charlotte Bronte yeah, and the fairies. Thank you so of much course. for coming on. I of learned course. so much. I'm so excited. I'm glad. I mean, stuff. there's more to learn, so I'm happy to happy to, to keep the conversation going. So, yes, yeah. we will definitely be stealing you again in the future. <laughs> yes. yes, hopefully many more times yes. for many more different activities. Yeah, I now really desperately want to read the juvenilia after yeah yeah the juvenilia <laughs> yeah well. it's it is it's it's a lot obviously but yeah it is it's it's stellar it really is really good stuff and um i think that was kind of one of the the most pleasant surprises i think in doing my own research was i didn't know how much i needed the juvenilia mm-hmm. until i did it and it was kind of like the key that kind of unlocked 
all the rest of you know the novels for me so yeah it, it is really really we might have to go away and read all the juvenilia and have a dedicated juvenilia episode <laughs> yeah um, yeah that's because every single time i hear somebody talk about it i mean obviously most of you speak to you but yeah we went to go and see um i think you were there we went to emma butcher's um yes. uh talk at the victorian spring seminars at the university of leicester and Mona, Mona Alvesan, who also did her PhD in Bronte, um, I went to go and see her do her pro- probation review before mm-hmm. you sort of move on PhD-wise. And every single time someone talks about the juvenilia, I have two emotions, which is, I have to read this and consume this. But my <laughs> second emotion is, I know this is going to consume me. And I'm going to be one of those people who's just like, there's this whole world yeah. of all of these, you know, the four yeah. siblings, and yeah. they all have different vibes, and they all do it, and it's all intersecting. So, yeah, yeah I just yeah. need to be emotion prepared to be completely overtaken yeah. yeah i mean yeah it is it's great and like you said they definitely have different vibes because you definitely see kind of Anne and emily go a different way mm. than kind of charlotte and branwell and then even branwell as they get over kind of takes it in a different direction and yeah it is it's great it's really interesting and i think that it really kind of lets you kind of see their personalities mm. you know and, and you can kind of understand their writing styles having stemmed from that so yeah it is it's it is great it's great yeah, oh my god, so I just I just keep thinking about like what would have happened if they'd all continued writing together as well. Yeah. Like what might have occurred because I'd have, I'd have loved to see how that sort of like came to fruition. Yeah. And whenever I think about it because you know those questions that you always get asked of just being like, you know, if you could meet anybody from the past and you got to speak, I was like I'm not even always sure I'd speak to like the adult author. Because, like, yeah. it would be nice to, like, meet, I don't know, maybe, like, teenage Charlotte Bronte and be like, yeah. Charlotte, tell me your thoughts. Yeah, what no, do you think? That actually is a really good point, because I would always be like, oh, I wish I could talk to Charlotte. When I was, you know, doing my own research yeah. or writing my thesis, like, yeah. oh, I wonder, you know, what she would what she would think about this, you know, and yeah, you always think of the adult, but actually, like, what would, yeah, 16-year-old Charlotte say about this? It's, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to know. But anyway, that's for another episode, for another time. Thank you so much. Jackie, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. (laughs) Thank you, everyone who's watching or listening to us. That's it for now. So we hope that you enjoyed our episode on Charlotte Bronte and Fairyland in celebration of her 207th birthday. If you want to see more of Jackie and follow her work on Fairy as a healing space, you can connect with her on Twitter at j underscore Francis14. Our next episode will be uploaded in May when we'll be discussing the Victorians' interest in the language of flowers. Subscribe to our YouTube or follow the podcast on Spotify to make sure that you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at alltheyearroundpod where we put out episode reminders and fun facts. See you next month. Bye for now. Bye.